Good morning, everybody, and welcome to episode 206 of the Quickie Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Hopkins, and thank you so much for being here. Today on the show, my guest is Paul Sayre. He's a graphic designer working out of OOPS, O-O-P-S, that stands for the Office of Paul Sayre. He's also the publisher of a book called Two Dimensional Man, which was published by Abrams. And he's also the art director of the band They Might Be Giants. During this episode, we talk about his unique path to the Oops studio. We talk about how he was always creative as a, a young, young child, young wildflower, we'll call it. And then his dad handed him a book and how that book pointed him to design. He also shares with us the influential instructor early on in his career, the workshop he was at in Switzerland that was really, really influential to him. We then get into some talk about print and what he misses about it. He then shares with us the wide variety of tangible design stuff, print and merch and all that kind of stuff that he creates for the band. Then we get into some struggles. He shares with us the struggle that he faced right out of school. And then he shares stories with us about a few projects where he was so excited to show his ideas and share them with the client. But when he did, the client was uh, quite a bit less excited, we'll say. Then I've got a, uh, a very unique ask it forward question for my next guest that we'll have to see how they handle on the spot. You have to hear what that is at the end of this episode, but let's get right to it. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest, Paul Serre. Here we go. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast, the daily interview show where we talk to graphic designers about their journey to the creative field, and we do it in 30 minutes or less. So, are you ready for a Quickie? Paul, welcome to the Quickie Podcast. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. No, I'm glad we can make the time under this sort of quarantine situation. Oh, yeah. You should see my beard right now. <laughs> my quarantine the, the beard. Quarantine I don't beard. normally have a beard. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, that's what I told my wife just the other day. I said, well, I guess I should grow a quarantine beard. Yeah, well, you don't have any gray in yours. Oh, there's plenty in there. I promise oh, yeah? you. I promise yeah, you there's I, plenty. I, <laughs> I haven't dyed it, if that's what you're getting to. Yeah. <laughs> It just all congregates on the bottom underneath in the, oh, in the thick stuff. Um, so before we get rolling, are you ready for a quickie, sir? Oh, absolutely. Always. Perfect. So I always ask the hardest question first. Briefly tell the listeners about yourself. Well, I'm a graphic designer, illustrator, I guess author now, uh, and other things. I have um, always sort of kept my design practice small. Mm -hmm. Uh Never more than three or four people in the studio at once. I, I sort of settled into a me, uh, one designer and an intern was so, sort of my sweet spot. But I had an office um, on, on 6th Avenue and 14th Street uh, for years uh, that I called OOPS, mm -hmm. which is uh, an acronym for Office of Paul Sayre. Um, <laughs> we were above a Dunkin' Donuts, but we were also above... Another design, graphic design firm, uh, Carlson Wilker, and then we had Zoot Delore, another graphic designer, 
firm above us. So we were sort of donuts and then graphic design. All <laughs> the way up. Uh, I've since um, I've since turned into a sort of a design nomad where I don't really have a set office. I work at home. I have a desk in the city, uh, and I spend a lot of time at, at coffee shops. That might also have to do that I'm writing more now mm-hmm. than I was before. Um, but yeah, and I've been working as a designer for about 30 years, so I've been doing this for a while. Perfect. 30 years in the game. So did you, did you come right out of school and just decide to open up Oops? Or did you sort of, you know, cut your teeth in the studio and agency world or in-house world before going out on your own? Oh, absolutely not. Well, <laughs> I did not come out and start my own uh, studio. It was a tortured, uh, it was definitely a tortured battle to get to that point. I would describe yeah. it as I started my, uh, I went to grad school. And so I was sort of older when I got out of school. I had sort of spent all this time in school kind of doing whatever I wanted creatively as a graphic designer to a certain degree, you know, and then ran into corporate America, uh, and was absolutely miserable at a series of jobs. I got married, moved to Baltimore, Maryland, and started my career at a marketing communications firm, which I don't recommend to anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, right there in the name. No. Um, and so I had to get fired from my last job before I started working for myself. And it was Mm -hmm. probably maybe 10 years into it. So, Got it. So then you went out on your own, built it, and haven't looked back. Oh, I looked back. Yeah, sure. <laughs> looked back with, why did I do this? Or looked back with, uh, no, no. God I, I mean, did yeah, this. I always am asking myself if I'm doing it the right way. I mean, you know, um, so there's a lot of looking back. Uh, and also, if you look back, you, you can always appreciate yourself, appreciate the situation now comparing it to how crappy it was at the beginning there. You know? Yeah, so. definitely. No, I hear you there looking back all the time just to ask questions, not, not with regret, just to ask questions. Yeah. I don't mind regrets though. <laughs> People are like, Oh, you shouldn't regret anything. Oh, come on. It's okay <laughs> to regret something every once in a while. Yeah, exactly. He's up. Perfect. I'm, yeah. Paul, I'm going to kick this back even further now. I want to chat a little bit about your childhood and I want to know, do you feel that you had a creative childhood that pointed you in this career path or introduced you to this creative career path? I do, but not in the uh, not in a, a linear way. Um, I grew up in upstate New York in a in an area, a town called Binghamton, New York, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I I would describe my childhood as as absolutely generic middle class upbringing, but at the same time, it was kind of crazy because I had. Uh, because of my siblings, two of my siblings, my older brother, Greg, is deaf and has some sort of undefined learning disability. And my younger brother um, was a troublemaker from the time he could walk um, and things escalated from there. But the two of them in the mix, uh, my brother, um, my younger brother eventually dropped out of high school and joined the circus. So he was traveling around with Ringling Brothers, taking care of the no way. family years. Uh, uh, but I, I, I credit my, my creative, but there was always making in the house. There was no music. You hear musicians often say, Oh, there's music. There were guitars everywhere. There's no music in the Sarah household, but there was a lot of making of all kinds. My dad was an aerospace engineer and, 
anything he could get his hands on to build or create, he did. He wasn't an artist. My mom liked to paint and she encouraged the art side. But my bro- older brother, Greg, was the, was the real graphic designer in the family. I mean, uh-huh. you know, I watched him design board games and logos for his bowling leagues and make all kinds of stuff, um, you know, as a 12-year-old, you know, or a 10-year-old. Uh-huh. Uh, very creative guy. Um, and uh, I drew a lot as a kid. That was my thing. Only super realistic pencil drawings. That's it. Nothing else. No color. You know, no brushes. Shading. <laughs> shading. Lots or, of lots of shading. Lots of Conte uh or what do you call those? The smeary sticks. Oh, you, know, I, you smear the value between the Yeah, the I know lead. what you're talking about. I just can't graphic. think of the term now. Um and that that eventually got me to studying graphic design. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, like you said, definitely not a linear trajectory to it. Did you have an aunt and uncle in graphic design or somebody like that? No, no, nothing. No, uh, my mom was an occupational therapist. As I said, my dad was an aerospace engineer. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it wasn't until college, I thought it was called commercial art, you know? Yeah. Um, and I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to go in this direction eventually. But my dad handed me a book. I can't remember the name of it now, but it was a said no no it's called graphic design and you should go to a college that's accredited and and uh, I ended up at Kent State and that's really where I sort of just blindly ended up in sort of a perfect place uh, in the early 80s to study design um, so yeah like many things in my life I think things that work out a lot of times are just blind luck <laughs> um, <laughs> being totally honest so your dad saw that you were creative, handed you this book to introduce you to graphic design, and you said, oh, okay, yeah, I'll check it yeah, out. And then good. Yeah. it wasn't until you were basically at university committed to that direction when you went, oh, yeah, this is it. Yeah, this is I think it. about beginning of my junior year, um, I actually thought, oh, well, I'm going to be studying illustration. That's what I'm going to be doing. Right? Mm-hmm. But I, it quickly... Uh, yeah, there were a couple teachers I had in my junior year that totally t- twisted me around and, uh, I stopped drawing totally. Really? And it was all typography and, um, two dimensional design theory. And then just, just diving into that whole thing and then stayed on for two more years, uh, for grad school, mainly because I feel like I wasn't sort of totally cooked. You know, I wasn't mm-hmm. done yet. I was, was uh, still needed some, uh, Leave, leave me in the oven a little longer. Um, <laughs> Let it keep breathing. And uh, yeah, I mean, I came out. I came out with with a clear idea of what I wanted to do. You know, um, the, the J. Charles Walker was the head of the program there at the time, and you know, I just watched him. You know, be a designer. Yeah. Like, you know, everything about his life, from his house to his office, to the way he handled himself, the way he dressed, the way he spoke. Um, he, you know, he lived design and it was, uh, you know, he introduced us as students to the whole culture and history of graphic design too. So he had a lot of, um, Swiss designers coming in, uh, in the summers that I got mm-hmm. to take workshops with FK Henry and, and, uh, Fritz Gottschalk and Rudy Rug and, uh, people like that. Um, and, uh, it was definitely a tribe, you know? It's, it's something now I feel my students, I teach at SVA and I, and I, 
I think there's some, obviously there's amazing things about where the discipline has, well, it's splintered, but all the different ways you can be a graphic designer now. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's wonderful. But I think the one thing that's lacking, I feel like, is that sense of belonging, you know, of, of feeling like you're really part of a specific culture. Mm -hmm. It was tangible then, and it's just not now. Um, and there's probably really good things about that, too. But I, I do feel like I really felt like there was a a bar, you know, that wasn't yeah. really even established by me by, you know, all the greats, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, Paul Rand and, and, uh, and J Joseph Mueller Brockman and John Hartfield, and you could go on and on and on. Um, and I don't know if that really exists the same way anymore. And I think we sort of lack, we, we lose a little something there. Hmm. Um, we gain, but we lose, you know, it's almost um, with everything. It was all uh, uh, white and male, <laughs> so we definitely are gain, have gained. Have gained in that, uh, in that in the old diversity category. <laughs> um, whoa, yeah. yeah. Jeez. European. Um, so that instructor that you were just mentioning, sorry, I missed his name. Oh, J. Charles Walker. J. Charles Walker. So would you say that he was a pretty influential figure in your design oh, yeah. path and your design career? Oh, absolutely. Um, I pattern myself after Charles, no question about it. So him as an influential figure, I want to now ask you about an influential design or a project or something creative that you saw and has just stuck with you since. Hmm. Well, you know, it's funny because graphic design is not, you know, we don't trying to think of an example. I mean, you know, it's like a sculptor can um, can do a mountain, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, graphic designers don't have that so much, you know, it's a lot of small things, you know, uh, and I think I would probably put it under the category of designers while I was in school that just really turned me on and, and, uh, April Griman, Art Chantry, uh, anything that they did, you know, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Charles Spencer Anderson, uh, Rudy Vanderlands from Emigre, um, uh, Rick Balsenny, I put him in there. I'm missing many. Joseph Mueller Brockman, I mentioned. Um, I mentioned Paul Rand already. So, you know, I think for me, it's a lot of drips, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a one thing. Um, I do remember, though, uh, being in, in a workshop in Switzerland, actually, in the studio of this designer, um, uh, Dominic K. Geitzbuehler, Dominic Geitzbuehler, okay. if that K is correct. Um, he, I think, uh, yeah, he's still, I think he's still working, but anyway, he, we visited his studio one day and he showed these posters he had done for the Zurich opera. And there were these huge, I think they're called a one size, the European poster size mm -hmm. and, uh, hundreds of them. And he, uh, you know, he basically did these and self financed them with sponsors so he would just show up with the posters to the, to the opera and not, you know, he had a client, but the client didn't have any input on the, <laughs> on what he was doing because yeah. he had self-financed these things. And they were just amazing. Uh, and I, 
I came back to the States and I already was looking at Art Chantry's posters, his theater posters. Mm -hmm. And when I came back, I was like, I'm going to do theater posters. I'm going to find a way to design theater posters because I already had an interest in theater. But I never other than going to shows, I never really had I was not going to be an actor or involved in the making of theater like that just me. Um, And so this was a way for me to sort of. Uh, really get into theater in Baltimore, which was really great. Um, so maybe that's an example. Awesome. That's a great one. Yeah. So the poster design as a poster designer, I got into theater as a poster designer. I, I found a, a, um, a theater in Baltimore and did basically the same thing because at this point too, I was out of school. I had a, a job that I was miserable at, at this marketing communications firm. Remember, don't do that. Um, <laughs> And, you know, uh, I went and found a theater that was doing interesting work and just said, hey, I'll do the, design these posters for you. You just need to pay for the materials. I'm going to silk screen them and basically showed up with posters. Um, they were a lot smaller than Mr. Geisbuehler's, but um, total creative control of them. So I would be designing them at night, you know, uh-huh. and then printing them at home at night. Uh, and that those posters really led to my all the work that I'm doing now. I mean, none of the work that I was doing at the marketing communications firm, anyone (laughs) cared about about these theater posters. Yeah. And it led directly into me doing book covers and illustration and everything I'm doing now. It's amazing how that just sort of aligns with what feels right. It ends up becoming the path moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, people are always like, I got to have a plan. Designers are big on that, right? We got to feel like we're in control. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> you just have to respond. You know, you, what you do is we, we respond. Most of the time, designers don't have a plan. You mm-hmm. know? Just you, what's the situation? You know, how do we leverage this? You know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, we so, need to do that with our careers too. A hundred percent. So and you, be open to just going down a path, you know, and following something. No, very true. Especially in this, like literally the climate that we're in. right now it's just reactionary you can plan this um now you had mentioned a couple of print projects some of the posters and stuff that you had screen printed but i'm curious to hear if you have something else here for this next question um i want you to tell us about how you have utilized print and print design in your career um any stories around printer packaging that you could share with us oh sure but i would also say you know it's partially when I started designing, I got out of college in 1990. Um, there was pretty much only print then. Yep. So, mm-hmm. uh, I was trained traditionally. Uh, I was also trained on the Macintosh. So, um, but so, you know, print is a big part of my, has been, and always can, is continues to be part of my, but it wasn't a choice, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> I guess now it's a, maybe a choice. Now, right? now it's a choice, I guess, but yeah. back then it definitely wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't. Um, I mean, I miss a lot of that because my relationship with print now, like I'm, I actually haven't been doing much silk screen, uh, over the last few years. And in, in fact, when I shut down my office on sixth Avenue, I kind of just decided to stop and got rid of all my silk screen equipment mm-hmm. and, um, just took, it was taken, I guess I figured like I'm taking a break. Um, or maybe I was just looking for the next thing and maybe that didn't feel like the next thing, whatever. But um, but print has always been part of part of my life as a designer. Um, 
it's my relationship to it has changed greatly because again, it was the only delivery mechanism then and now it isn't. So, you know, there were a lot more press checks and, and, and those types of things. Yeah. Uh, even though I do a lot of design for print, I haven't been on a press check in years, which, um, I sort I miss, you hmm. know, here's something that in terms of my perspective, being in it through the transition to designing digitally and then having what's happened over the last 10 years where the delivery mechanism is all mechanism is also digital, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. we were printing design for print. Then we were designing on the computer for print and we're telling ourselves the whole time, it's just a tool. The computer's just a tool. The computer's just a tool. Well, now it's a, not a means to an end. It is the end, you know? It, it never leaves the screen in a lot of situations, mm -hmm. right? So back when I started, one of the things that attracted me about graphic design was multiple copies of things. Yes. You know, like the power of print, Gutenberg. I'm talking Gutenberg, right? Yeah. Like, oh my God, being on a press and seeing like a hundred thousand of this thing you designed just pop out of the other end of this big. <laughs> the metal. monstrous machine. Yeah. You know, um, and I can't say I did a lot of that type of printing, but you know, multiple copies and seeing it places physically yep. was such a seductive thing, you know, yes. the power of print, you know? Yep. So, um, that is, that's sort of a, that's always kind of a weird thing to kind of, uh, now, of course, we're really just talking about eyeballs, I suppose, people seeing your work and with the, with the computer, or, and phones being the delivery mechanism, a lot more eyeballs, right? But yeah, I don't know. It's, it doesn't have the same effect. It doesn't have the no. same feeling. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it. So you go from this place where everything's tactile mm -hmm. to where everything where you're sitting down most of the time, staring at a screen, right? Yeah. So that was the part about silk screen during the whole transition years ago in the '90s mm -hmm. that I I really held on to silk screen because it was like a dying print medium um it hadn't yet become something that designers did mm -hmm. i just was introduced to it in a printmaking class but when i would show people my posters then they'd be wait you printed these what <laughs> you know you a press check you go and you inspect and oversee the manufacturer of the thing that you have designed right yes. and in in the in the early '90s, I'm printing my own posters, and yeah, James Victoria, I met with him. He's like, "I love these posters," and I'm like, "Yeah, I print them." He's like, "What? Why?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Why not?" And it didn't become. It, it's funny because again, I teach. It didn't become until like the 2000s when I realized that, you know, when I was a young designer, the computer was a way to rebel, mm -hmm. right? But then in the mid 2000s, print was a way to rebel. Silk screen. All my students started silk screening, and I'm, I'm like, wow, this is weird. <laughs> this is just this is definitely weird. It's great, but it's weird. So, what would um, you say is your favorite print project that you've been a part of? The one that you designed? Maybe, maybe something you printed. Maybe it was something you sent off to be manufactured. What stands out as your favorite? Um, well, I guess again, I would say as graphic designers, we have little moments. 
So yes. it's hard to say this one thing. But I, I would, mainly because I'm in the middle of it now, my relationship with the band They Might Be Giants, I would say, is, is the thing I would, example I would give. Even though I am doing a lot of digital work with them, like I designed an app, we're doing a lot of music videos for them, all kinds of other things. Mm -hmm. But we do physical, you know, vinyl. Yeah. You know, they've always done that. Uh, and, you know, you know, holding a record, you know, um, and, you know, being able to design the, you know, the LP, the label, you know, um, That's it's, cool. it's just, it's, it's, it's really great. And there's all kinds of, there's, I've probably done like at least, I think six or seven releases for them. Mm -hmm. So there's CDs or physical CDs. There's, there's huge posters. I've done a six foot poster for them. We do t-shirts. All this stuff is analog. It's all stuff people either buy or we do coins for them. We little commemorative coins for the fan club, fan club. It's picks, you know, you name it. Uh, we designed a, a, um, a life-size version of this monster truck hearse. Okay, I had no idea that they were the band, but I literally saw um, the music video where they yeah. it was corrugated, right? Yeah, it was cardboard. Yeah, it was cardboard. Uh -huh. I saw that. Yeah. I just watched so, that the other day, and I, had, I just saw the pink, giant pink monster truck, and I was like, that's pretty cool. I didn't yeah. even know it was them. Oh, that's, and that's me. That's um, awesome. Yeah, that's me. Uh, and th so, you know, that's a print project right there. <laughs> there <you laughs> I think it was 12 feet tall. Uh, we printed, we printed uh, the whole uh, vehicle out uh, on large-scale Epson prints. Yeah. It took over 60 hours of print time. Uh, and then we glued, we, we pasted it to cardboard and then made the, yeah. made the thing out of cardboard. So the video you're talking about is, it was... So we were in the process of making this thing, and I had an okay from the band to build it with the idea we'd do something with it, but we didn't know what it was. And uh, I think they originally, I was originally like, yeah, $1,000, just pay for the materials, we'll yeah. build this thing in a couple of weeks. No, no, it took six months. It probably cost 10 times that. Um, then it became a music video. Um, they were happy to re... Um, you know, building, spending a thousand dollars to build a life-size monster truck hearse out of Epson prints and cardboard is sort of, sort of insane, yeah. but $10,000 <laughs> for a music video makes a little more sense. Yeah. Right? It sounds like, so, wow, what a great deal. You guys did really good with that budget. <laughs> um, yeah. That's some cool stuff. Being able to create a, just a wide variety of tangible things. Um, you know, that's really print and print design at its core, creating tangible things that people hang on to that leave lasting memories in people's rooms, in their houses, on their shelves, on their coffee tables, in their hands and live in their environment and impact their environment. So it's a good one. Well, one of my one of my big things as a graphic designer, too, I realized really early on that it's like, well, you know, this a lot of this stuff is disposable. And I really was uncomfortable with my work getting thrown away, which is probably why I gravitated toward books, mm -hmm. you know, book cover design, because it's like, you know, ugh, the idea of something you labor over being disposable is just not appealing. Um, <laughs> I can, yeah, I can imagine that. Unless you do it on purpose, like we did with the truck there, we re ended up recycling it mm -hmm. for effect. But. So, Paul, I'm going to get into story time here. 
So the next couple of questions I have for you take you down part of your career where you've likely made some mistakes, learned some lessons, and I want to share those with the listeners. Um, first up, what has been the most challenging period of time in your design career so far? Why was it challenging and how did you get through it? Well, I might say now in some ways, but I wouldn't, I, I, it's not the most challenging right now. I'll get back to that in a second. Definitely the most challenging was right when I got out of school. Mm -hmm. No question about it. I had found this thing that I love to do. I was up all night doing it every, you know, five or six nights a week, happily uh, creating all kinds of things, taking my own photographs and making typefaces, you know, whatever. And then, and then you get the job and the job is not that <laughs> the job was not grad school. <laughs> and it took me five or six years of, of going from job to job, thinking that there was a job up the, out there that was going to make me happy. And, you know, you realize at a certain point, it's like, well, that job probably doesn't exist. Uh -huh. you know? And so I think my studio was a response to that. Uh, my studio really has been over the years as close a replication I could have to grad school um, and still have it be, you know, something that brings in checks every once in a while and, mm -hmm. and pays, pays the bills. Um, but early in the career, you're just you're running up against a whole bunch of people with agendas that aren't your agenda. Yes. And are not interested in the same things that you're interested in and probably have um, and have and, and have different motives, mm -hmm. you know. So really, I, to get through that, it was just keep swimming until you got to the point where you could create the studio. Yeah, arguments, lots of arguments, lots of arguments, uh, um, mutinies. Um, my early uh, life as a designer in the in the gray cubicle world was uh, was not something I'd like to repeat. But um, we talk about looking backwards. Uh, you know, it. I learned a lot from those experiences though, uh -huh. too. Uh -huh. yeah. So I can, I can navigate all kinds of different things that relate to clients and, you know, I don't know, whatever the business side of things, even though I don't really consider my office, I can, can consider it a creative studio, not a business. Uh -huh. uh, I apply lessons I learned all the time from, from those years. So it wasn't a complete loss. <laughs> uh, in, in terms of now, I will say that now is a challenging time, but I would also say too, it's always challenging, you know, yes. there's always friction. There's always pushback. It's never easy. I think people have the impression, at least from my perspective, I think, you know, people come to me all the time, like, you know, designers, like, I feel like I'm a design shrink half the time because <laughs> I'm miserable. What do you do? How do you do the work you do? And I'm like, I don't know, you go with less, uh, you know, you, you, you say no, Yes. you know, you walk away from things, you don't get involved in things that make you miserable. Like that's it. That's great. On one hand, there's always a back end to it. You know, it's like you, you make more money than I do. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, so, uh, people don't like hearing that <laughs> Yes. they want to hear that there's some magic happiness pill you can take as a graphic designer and everything, all the frustrations and the irritations will go away Yes, and they don't, it's constant. Mm -hmm. uh, it just changes a little bit. Uh, you know, 
in terms of some of the things that are become challenging. And I would say right now, because of my advanced age, let's just say, <laughs> I'm 55, to be a designer who makes stuff like I like to make stuff. One of the reasons I keep it small is because I want to make this stuff myself. I don't want to just kind of look at things other people are making. Yes. And not, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm fairly, uh, I become rarer as the years go on as somebody who kind of goes at it this way. You know, a lot of times if, if, if you know, your career is taking you into things that maybe your interests change, you, you know, you're in more of a management situation typically when you're in my age, um, at my age. Um, so I'm, I'm, I am always constantly kind of questioning what's next and where does it go. But right now it's especially weird because I just finished writing a book and then going on a book tour and it sort of splintered my practice a little bit. Like the practice took a back seat, no more employees right now, just me again. Um, I'll build teams of people for bigger projects, but it's all virtual. It's all this, mm-hmm. you know, yep. all Skype. Um, and it's a, it's a little like I do have to figure out what is where I'm going. The third act kind of thing, I think is the hackneyed term that's thrown around, but <laughs> I got to figure out what my third act is going to be. Um, I'm not sure what it is. I mean, cheers for me, because, you know, if you knew what it was going to be, why bother? But, um, it's definitely something that can keep you up at night if you don't, you know, you, your, your, your purpose is getting a little fuzzy. I've never had that problem before in my life. I always was hundred percent sure of why I was here and what my purpose was, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, nice. and that's a little, I mean, I'm a dad now I have two 10 year olds, so, um, I'm also around more for them right now mm-hmm. at this time. And it's, so it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird time. <laughs> weird time. Just trying to figure it all out. Right. Yeah. Aren't we all? Um, Paul, so I want to get a little bit more specific for this next one. Um, can you take us to a design or a project that you were a part of, um, a specific one that did not go well or bring the desired result? What was that like? How did that feel? Can you take us to that project or story? Oh, that never happens. (laughs) Oh, so many wreckage, the flaming wreckage of killed projects and things gone wrong. Um, (laughs) Where shall I start? Um, I'm trying to think of an example I haven't given recently. I got in a shouting match with with Steely Dan in the recording studio. Um, F-bombs back and forth. That's in the book. I'm not (laughs) going to give that to you now. Um, You know what? I did a book recently for the artist J.R. I don't know if you know him. No. He's a French... Uh, artist, he does installations. You've seen this stuff. They're huge black and white images of parts of bodies or people's faces or eyes on buildings. Okay. Um, installations, but they're, they're not, most of the work he does is outdoors and he's a photographer and he applies these, uh, images. He did a whole, uh, village in Brazil. I think it was in Brazil. Mm-hmm where he took photos, this favela on the side of a hill, where he took images of people who lived in the buildings and then their faces are on the building. So the whole hill, I mean, this massive monumental thing of these eyes staring back. Wow. Uh, it's, uh, it's great. It's amazing. 
um, anyway, I got a call to design his book, you know, his, his big JR book. Uh, this was a couple of years ago. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I can't give you any juicy stories about what happened. It wasn't that juicy. Um, other than visiting his studio once, I never had direct contact with JR. Um, the editor at the publisher I was working for, it just seemed like I would be excited about something. I would send it designing the book and then they would pick out things that was the, that were the least interesting or even suggest things that I didn't want to do. And mm-hmm. it just kept happened. It happened. It happened. It happened. And then I just called my contact there and said, I'm sorry, but I've got to step aside because you need somebody else, anybody else doing this, but me. Um, and it was sad because it was, uh, I, I, the book I would, I would say is not what I thought it should have been. Let's just say, um, and, um, there, but there are many, many times I, I think now with like with this JR book, there are times when you, you push back hard. Mm -hmm. There's times when you have to use, uh, a lot of often it's a very subtle process of how you do that, how you say no, or how about this, you know, whatever it is. Um, but there are times when you just know this is never going to be okay. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's just not going to be okay. And I will say this too, that there have been plenty of times when I've thought that, and then the client's like, Whoa, whoa no, 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 we don't want you to quit. Uh, what do we need to do to change this? And then yeah. the situation's better that happens. But in this case, they were like, Oh, you quit. Oh, good. Okay. Well, we're sorry to hear that. Uh, you know, don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out. Um, so, you know, it just wasn't working and it it happens. It's not, it's not anybody's fault. It's like, it could have been my fault. could have been their fault. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but there are so many of those, man, they just, it's just inevitable. And, uh, I've kind of, I used to, have regrets or, you know, always constantly like, how do I get this great thing? Let's say it's a book cover, right? Mm -hmm, Little, mm -hmm. little project, right? I've done this thing and it's just, I just like, this is so good. I'm so excited about this. And then someone you're presenting to it, to it to is not, you know? So how you address that is a fundamental and how you deal with that is a fundamental aspect of being a graphic designer. It doesn't go away. You get better at it in some case, ways, but mm-hmm. it still never goes away. And even when you apply your understanding of human nature, maybe that you've accrued over over time, going through this so many times, often it, it'll fail in some way that you never anticipated, yeah. you know? Um, and it's just sort of, I think it's like life, you know, it's like, we're all going to die. It's part of the deal. <laughs> and if that wasn't there at the end, just, did you see the good place, the the TV show, the series? I have not seen, I've seen like one episode, call it, but right. I definitely want to dive in more because oh, I, I loved it. Go. But they address that. It's like, well, if you're, if you're in the good place and everything's great all the time, forever and eternity, you end up wanting to, well, I'm not going to say this because it would ruin it for people who haven't seen it, including yeah. you. Anyway, they address this thing. Let's just say that I think the killed stuff and the friction is, is good. 
for us as Definitely. creative people. No, I agree with that because there's things that come out of that that help you to appreciate the things that either are created from that situation or a greater appreciation and um, respect for the situations that do go and the excitement is equaled at presentation and things like that, right? You yeah, get yeah. that sort of greater respect and appreciation for those. Sure. sure. So, Paul, I'm going to turn this bus around here for you. I want to hear now about a project that you've been a part of that you are the most proud of, one that just makes your heart sing. Mm. Uh, well, again, some little moments. Um, we did uh, we did a, a music video. Um, I, you know, this is not the trajectory of my whole career. But again, it'd be a little weird if I said this one book cover, this one book cover. It just seems- <laughs> Uh, but the videos that I, the video, uh, work that I've been doing recently for, uh, they might be giants. I'm really, really proud of, mm-hmm. uh, in particular, we did a video that is sort of a reflection of how our relationship has changed a bit. Well, it's always sort of been like this. It's been very kind of back and forth and it's not the typical, Hey, we need this thing designed. You know, the client calls the designer. It's more like, Hey, we have a release coming out what can we do with this you know what would be interesting <laughs> yeah that's cool that collaboration so in this case we i i teach as i mentioned at sva and my seniors they're like let's do a music video for the band i'm like okay let's do it so i contacted him and i said john john flansburg just you know give me a give me a song off the latest album that you're not going to do anything with and we're going to do a video with it no pressure we just we'll we'll do it and he gives me the best song which is typical John, but it was a, they do these biography songs they have. They did one on James K. Polk and uh, I can't remember the Dutch obscure Dutch painter that they did a song about, but anyway, they did one on Nikola Tesla. So uh, that was the song Tesla. And so uh, we all started thinking about it and we had, we came up with so many good ideas that I convinced the band to do nine different remixes of the song for each of the videos. So we ended up doing nine videos. Uh, you can find this online. Just type in, you know, Tesla, TMBG, or they might, they might be giants, excuse me. Uh, and so I had this in my mind to, again, talking about analog and making my life miserable. Uh, remind me to talk to you about convenience or the lack thereof. But this was the least convenient way to go about anything I think I've ever done. Um, but we did um, eight millimeter film, yeah. uh, black and white film. Yeah, Tesla, early 1900s, you know, it kind of made sense. I really wanted that grainy, scratchy, you know, film thing. And you can do that with filters, but I just didn't want to do that. So I don't know anything about eight millimeter cameras. So I just, that's what the process was. It was like finding these cameras on eBay for 20 bucks and then, you know, spending months and months and months running down old film stock from, you know, this guy, I found some film stock from uh, Czechoslovakia. And the guy Jeez. said it was from the 90s. It's been in his refrigerator since the 90s. And it was it was used for airplane cameras, wing cameras. Wow. <laughs> and so we use that stuff. But these rolls of film are three minutes of footage. So we'd have so you're paying like, I don't know, 25, 30 bucks a roll. And each roll is three minutes. So it t- so there happened to be a processing lab called Pack Lab in business at the time in the Lower East Side. They're, they've since gone out of business. Surprise, surprise. 
But um, so it would take like, you know, two or three days to process the film. Yeah. And then once it was processed, eight millimeter film is 16 millimeter stock cut in two. The only time, way you can then get it digital, digitally uh, transferred is if it was cut down to eight millimeter. We only way we could do that, we had to send it to Kansas City to this place that cut it into the eight millimeter. Then they sent it back and then we took it over to Duell up, uh, uptown for the film transferring. So for three wow. minutes of footage that you might not even use, it took like three weeks Jeez. and maybe a hundred bucks, <laughs> hundred bucks for every three minutes of film. Oh, it was great. It was just, it was so good. Um, and the videos all are different takes on Tesla. Like there's one, we we ha we got a guy to be a tes Tesla impersonator, but he's a skater. So he's on a skateboard skating around the city, giving <laughs> the middle face, picking a piss on the street. It's, you know, uh, there's one where we electrocuted a teddy bear. Um, it lights up, it bursts into flames. Um, the what well, there, there's a bunch of other ones and there's nine of them uh, we did stuff with the tesla uh dome with the you know electric lightning bolts we did an all type one that i'm really really proud of because it, it's people see it and they're like how did you make that because the light comes through the typography in this mm -hmm. really analog way um and if we did anything with after effects then we would project we would uh put it on the screen and then shoot we had a tripod and a eight millimeter camera shooting it off of the screen. Yeah. So literally everything was eight millimeter. That project was just, I just never, I just didn't want that thing to end. <laughs> That's you know? awesome. I uh, definitely have to look that up on YouTube to see that. Yeah. Well, Paul, you've reached the point of the show for the ask it forward question, my friend. That's where I have a question for you from my last guest and you get the opportunity to ask a question of my next guest. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but you can ask them anything. Got it. So my last guest was Sid Danger. She was the creative director and co-publisher of Sad Mag, which is an art um, and creative magazine that's run out of Vancouver, British Columbia here. She wanted to ask, what is one common item you see every day that needs a design change or refresh? Uh, this, oh, I, I, my, my joke answer to that is not anything that Adobe makes. Leave <laughs> it alone. Leave it alone, Adobe. Cut it out. Quit changing the names of things I've been doing on these programs since 1984. <laughs> Sorry. We have to make money, don't we? Uh, no, no. I'm going to say something super obvious. It's the UB, USB, uh, connector. Every time you put it in, it's not the right way. And even when you put it in the right way, it seems like not the right way. You flip it over and then it's not the right way and you flip it back over. <laughs> that's you know so true. I've never thought about that, but that's so true. Uh, I will also say uh, to go coffee lids. I personally am plagued by them. I don't know if you're like this, but I'm telling you every third one, it, I get coffee all over me. Yep. Like it leaks, the, the lid doesn't stay attached. Nope. It the either gets a crack cup. or the seam of the cup. I was just going to say the seam of the cup. That's where it all goes sideways. Um, 
and they, you know, they stick under your nose. The flap comes up. Uh, now, they, we shouldn't even have these things anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> be, I'll be bringing our own cups in there. <laughs> but those are two that are, I can give you off the top of my head. Love it. Um, Paul, what is the question you would like me to ask the next guest for you? Okay, hold on a minute. I have to look this up real quick. My question is Pantone 14, or sorry, Pantone 4156 or Pantone 4157? <laughs> that is my question. I love it. <laughs> Good luck. Paul, you've reached the end of the Quickie Podcast. Thank you so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Quickie Podcast. I really appreciate your time. Definitely go check out Paul on Instagram. He's got some great things there. If you're really liking what you're hearing on the Quickie Podcast here, please head over to iTunes and or Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you're listening, and leave a rating and a review for the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks, and have a great day.